This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Bob Hughes is the guest speaker on this message. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To say the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Wow, what what an amazing... uh, section of scripture. It begins with the word finally, which um, isn't actually accurate. You're tempted whenever you see the word finally and you look at the the book and you see there's another 40 verses that it's it's like, you know, a Pentecostal preacher saying finally. He doesn't really mean it. It just means that he's just starting the the last section, which may be 45 minutes or so. Uh, but what it, what it actually means finally is, and so then, brothers. And he, he focuses on something that is just critical for every one of us to focus on, not only on Sunday morning, but every single day and all the time. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He says, no problem for me to remind you again, and it's safe for you. It's important for us to stay. In, there's something of safety that staying in a place of rejoicing in the Lord produces in us. And of course, you know, we're here now in Philippians 3, that joy has been the great theme of this entire book. And joy is uniquely the mark of all of those who've been transformed by the gospel. And joy is much more than uh, an upbeat personality. It's much more than uh, just being happy, right? We're all, we're all current with the new happy song. Is it Pharrell? You know, I'm happy. I think the line is, I'm happy uh, like, like a room without a roof. I think, I think that's what the line in there is, at least the first line, which is exactly like happiness. Because as long as the sun is shining through that room without a roof, that's a good thing. But uh, let me give you a clue. It's going to get cold. You're going to wish you had a roof. Uh, it's going to rain. It's going to snow. If it's Texas, it's going to hail. And uh, so uh, Pharrell did a good job of uh, addressing what happiness is. Um, happiness comes from the old English root, hap. And it's tied to a unique happening, a moment, a happenstance. Uh, pleasant emotions tied to circumstances. And happiness, like in Pharrell's song, only lasts as long as the situation is positive, right? Real joy is profoundly different. Real joy comes from God and a God-word focus. We, we rejoice in the Lord, don't we, okay? And there's two keys to joy. There's what you know, and there's who you know, that are both critical in walking in real joy. First, it's, 
It's what you know. Joy is found in right theology. And I know I think, oh, theology, wow, why'd you have to say theology? All theology is, is the study of God. Every one of us sitting in this room are theologians. Every one of us have opinions, have ideas about who God is, what, what's important, why life matters. Every one of us are theologians. The challenge is some of us are really lousy theologians and some of us are good, okay? Because to the degree you know the truth of Scripture, as the Scripture says, you're going to know the truth and what? Truth sets you free. Thank you. You can interact with me. I like that, okay? No snoozing for me, okay? You're going to know the truth and the truth will set you free. And guess what the opposite of that is? You don't know the truth, you're not free. You're not free. There's going to be problems, aren't there, okay? So we're all theologians, and theology is just about knowing God, knowing the truth about Him, His holy nature, His sovereign will, His amazing love in sending His Son to earth for people like you and I who don't deserve His love at all, and His power that's at work through His church to accomplish His work on the earth. It's about Good theology is about biblical thinking. And it's not just about biblical thinking when it comes to, I'm going to die, I believe in Jesus, and I want to go to heaven. It's, it's a biblical lens that we look through in everything, isn't it? It's the key to joy. Looking through all of life through a biblical lens. And then secondly, joy is rooted in right relationship. It's who you know. It's what you know, and it's who you know. And it's all about walking and living by faith with the living God. How, how incredible. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know me. What, what, a, what a pleasure. In his presence is fullness of joy. What a wonder, huh? And guess what? Not in his presence not fullness of joy, right? So there's a direct correlation between what we know and who we know. And as we go into the section of Scripture that we're going to look at together here, it's all about joy. And you might not think so at certain moments because Paul's going to hammer some guys. But uh, it's about joy that's found in righteousness. It's about joy that's found in standing right. The word, the word righteous simply means to be right with God. It means to be in right standing. And there's no greater joy than that, is there? To be in right standing with the God who created everything and has designed everything, including you, for his glory and his purpose. So we're going to see here that there are two kinds of people. There's two basic kinds of perspectives and really only, only two kinds of people and perspectives in the whole world when it comes to being righteous with God. There's one approach, which is righteousness from man. It's righteousness that's based on man's work to earn his right standing with God. Okay, that's the first one. Righteousness from man. It leads to, uh, to real frustration, great disappointments, Ultimately, it leads to tragic, eternal loss. And then there's the second approach to life. There's the second kind of person that bases their relationship with God on a righteousness that comes from God, that's a gift from God. It's, it's based on God's work in Christ to earn our right standing before him. It has, it, it's something that's, that's up and away from us. It doesn't have anything to do with us. When he declares us righteous, he's looking at his son and declaring him righteous. And if we're found in Christ, we're righteous as well. So it's based on Christ. It leads to a life and an eternity full of rich treasure and ultimately exceeding great joy. And so Paul's going to take us through these two approaches to right standing with God and show us some of the characteristics, 
characteristics of each so that we can know and we can identify the difference and we're not stupid and we don't buy in to the wrong kind of righteousness, okay? How many want to not buy into the wrong kind of righteousness? Right, good, okay, respond with me, thank you. Okay, turn with verse two with me. Here we go, let's keep going. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Wow, that's, that, is, that is harsh. What? Paul begins addressing the righteousness that comes from man right off the bat here. And in verse 2, he tells us three times, look out, look out, look out. That means it's dangerous. It means that, that this approach to righteousness is looming all around us. And if we're not careful, it can snare us. And specifically in, in, uh, in Philippians 3, he's referring to the circumcision party who are also known as the Judaizers. And in, we, in studying the book of Acts here uh, earlier this year, we learned about the Jews in, in the book of Acts who were supposed believers in Jesus, who followed Paul everywhere he went, creating great confusion and stirring all kinds of trouble. And they did this by teaching all of the young Gentile converts that in addition to placing their trust in Jesus as their Savior, they had to also be circumcised and obey all of the Jewish ceremonial laws to be forgiven of their sins and to gain right standing before God. And this was not just an issue in the Philippian church. It's a significant issue throughout the book of Acts. It was a significant issue through many of the young fledgling churches in the first century. And you'll also remember that we read in Acts 15 about the first church council that was held in Jerusalem. And it was held over this very issue where Paul comes before all of the brothers and he tells the story of how God poured out his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles in, at Cornelius's house. And, and how just like he poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost on the Jews and how the Gentiles were filled with the Holy Spirit, their lives were transformed and how they had just put their trust in Jesus the same way that they did and that he had filled them with his spirit. They trusted him with, with the message of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, paying the price for sin, rising from the dead, and nothing more. And God had seen that as enough to fill them to overflowing with his Holy Spirit. We also see in the, you can look in the, the book of Romans, Romans 4 is an important place that talks about this, but there's also a whole letter that Paul writes to the Galatians that's just all about this core issue of righteousness through the works of man versus righteousness through Christ. And the idea that these new Gentile believers are being told that they have to become Jews before they can become Christians is infuriating to Paul. And he warns the church about their poisonous teaching. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators. He says, look out for the dogs. What, is, what does that mean? Well, he's not referring to the domesticated, fluffy, I don't know what the dog's name is at your house. I've got Buddy, my golden retriever, my dopey dog, who just, he thinks I'm awesome. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, thank God for, for a creation like that, that you just get out of bed and he's like, wow, you know, you're here. It's, it's, like, it's, it's wonderful. May the, may the world be filled with dogs like Buddy. He gives me a lot of joy. He is dumb as a brick, but he gives me a lot. That's what he does. He gives me joy. He has no thumbs. He can't open the door. He, can't, he can't get anything. He can't get his own food. He's absolutely worthless, but he gives me joy. He gives me joy. So, but these are a very different kind of dog. These are the dogs, if you've ever traveled in the third world, you see these kinds of dogs. They're, they're mongrels who run in packs like wolves. They're filthy. They're diseased. They, they feed on waste and refuge from the streets and from the trash heap. They're vicious and often rabid. And a, a bite from one of these dogs could kill you or kill one of your babies. And so Paul says, look out. And normally when we think of dogs, we think of how the Jews 
used to always refer to the Gentiles as dogs, didn't they? You, you read that a lot in the Old Testament and how the Jews would, would look down their nose in the Gentiles and see them as spiritually unclean. And so Paul flips the terms on the Judaizers, calling them the real dogs. And that in rejecting God's gift of righteousness in Christ alone, and in choosing instead a man-made righteousness through their religious requirements, they're nothing more than filthy dogs. This is harsh, man. The Judaizers don't like this, okay? This is offensive. Next he says, watch out for the evildoers. What it literally means is evil workers. And Paul turns the tables on the Judaizers again for their efforts to keep the ceremonial law that they think is a kind of good works, right? But from Paul's perspective, it's nothing but evil. They are evil workers that could never gain righteousness before a holy God. And then he says, look out for the mutilators. Finally, for the third time, Paul rips into these guys, switching terms on them again, claiming that the the outward mark of circumcision as a means to gain righteousness is no different than the flesh-tearing and mutilations of the prophets of Baal that bore on their bodies trying to be heard by their pagan gods. That it's no different than that. Paul mercilessly excoriates any attempt by men to gain their own righteousness through their own efforts, even religious efforts. And then he turns to the righteousness from God, which is found in Christ. In verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So it's probably good to just take a second and talk about circumcision, everybody's uh, favorite topic. In Genesis 12, God revealed himself to a man named Abraham, who became the father or patriarch of the Jewish people. And God made a covenant with Abraham, promising to bless him and to multiply his descendants like the stars of the sky. God also promised Abraham that through his lineage would come one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we're told that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham looked forward in time. He heard God's promise to him. He looked forward in time and placed his faith in this promised one that God would send as a blessing to the whole world. And circumcision was the physical mark that God required to remind all of Abraham's descendants of that covenant promise that was made to God by, by God to Abraham. Excuse me. Sadly, as the centuries passed, Abraham's descendants became more focused on the outward mark than on the promise of the Savior that the covenant pointed to. And so now we see in verse 3, Paul boldly declares, for we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. And the point is this, that God's covenant people aren't simply those who've had a physical procedure done to their body. The true circumcision are the promised seed of Abraham that the Old Testament talks about. The true heirs of God's covenant with Abraham. A people restored to God through faith in the promised one that Abraham believed in centuries ago, the Lord Jesus Christ. This true circumcision, the true covenant people of God, are those who are made righteous before God through faith in the perfect Lamb of God who bore their sin by shedding His blood once and for all on the cross. And Paul gives us three specific attributes 
of this true circumcision people, what they look like. And it's a great picture of what we're to look like, what it means to be authentic followers of Jesus today, the circumcision. I know you probably don't think of yourself much that way. I know it's a little strange, but I hope it makes sense to you. The authentic people of God worship by the Spirit of God. They worship by the Spirit of God. They're a people who have been made alive by the Spirit of God. They don't worship by their own efforts. They don't worship by man's ideas. They worship because the Spirit of the living God has come and made his home within them by grace. It's a divine work of God where God's own Spirit comes to dwell in us and then to express glory back to God again with our lives, right? They're a people by the Spirit. They're worshipers by the Spirit of God, but they're also worshipers, right? The word worship, the way it's used today, I, I wish I could just, you know, slap somebody and, and have things change in our minds. Unfortunately, what do we think of when we think of worship? We think of this. We think uh, we come to a building. We think we sit down. It's nice. It's clean. Uh, there's some music. It's, you know, we sing some songs. Pastor gets up and does some stuff. We, you know, there's cookies and, co- and coffee, and we go eat chicken. That's, that's worship, right? Biblical worship has, is nothing like that. I mean, that's a place where you can worship. But biblical covenant people, their life is worship. Their, their life is about the glory of God. Everywhere, in everything, all the time, it's about the glory of God. It's about bringing Him praise. It's about His glory. It says, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. True worship is everywhere all the time. Romans 12, 1 is just a great verse. Many of you probably know it. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What's, what is worship? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. That means now while I'm alive, it's not just when I go to heaven. No, it's right now. It's right where you are. It's an acceptable sacrifice. It means, it means that every part of our life, we want to be careful that we align it with God's holy standards so it's acceptable. It's acceptable worship, right? That's what spiritual worship is. I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, definition, worship. That's what worship is. And so what that means... We present our lives to God. Guess what? We do, it, we do it on Sunday mornings, right? We come this morning. I hope, I hope your thoughts are turned to the Lord. I hope your heart is turned to the Lord. I hope your ears are turned to the Lord. I hope you're presenting your body. You're, you're walking in this morning thinking, how do I offer my life as an instrument of the Lord? I hope you're here to be trained and prepared. I hope, I hope you're engaging. I hope you're a worshiper with me this morning, right? Isn't that great? But get, tomorrow morning at about 11, you're also called to be a worshiper at work, right? Or at home, or you're doing the laundry, or, you're, you're, or Wednesday afternoon at school. You're a worshiper. You're presenting our bodies, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Uh, Wednesday night, doing the budget, that as I engage my checkbook, as I engage my stewardships and my financial priorities, it's worship, it's the Lord's money, it's the Lord's, everything is His. And so I'm doing that for His glory and to praise Him. I do, the Thursday night, if it's date night or it's family night or I'm hanging with some friends, it's a time to worship. Friday night, you go into the football game, you go watch the kids play ball. It's, it's a context of worship. Saturday morning, pulling the weeds and mowing your stupid lawn. No, oh wait, no, it's a time of worship, right? Everything. Worship is about 
everything, everywhere, all the time. And the true people of God not only worship in the Spirit, but they glory in Christ Jesus. They glory in Christ Jesus. The true circumcision find their delight in Jesus. The delight of their lives is Jesus. He's the center. He's the center of the story in everything. We find what what he thinks, what he wants, what his desires are at the center of everything. We glory in Jesus Christ. Our affections are for him and ever-growing. And glorying in Jesus is, is getting to know him is not like getting to know me, okay? You want to get to know me, you can meet me today, and it, that meeting will probably be the very best impression you will ever have of me. From that moment, I'll smile, I'll wish you well, I'll hopefully, you know, my breath will be fresh, and that will be the last great impression that you ever have of me. Because the more you get to know me, the more you're going to know the truth about me. And it's not all that in the bag of chips, right? And you're not all that in the bag of chips. And so the more we get to know one another, the more familiar we become, the less impressed we are with one another, right? It just goes with the territory. I've got, I've got a million godly friends, people that you would think are really godly, and they ain't all that in the bag of chips, they're people just like you. We're all people, right? But glorying in Jesus is something completely different. Your first impression of him is the weakest you'll ever have in your life. Every time you look at him, every time you behold him, every time you learn about him, every time you read about him in his word, he becomes more beautiful. He becomes more awesome. He becomes more heart-consuming. He becomes everything, right? The more you know him, the more you want to know him. The more you behold him, the more glorious he becomes. So the true people of God are people who worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus. And third, put no confidence in the flesh. In an ever-growing way, the true circumcision, God's true, authentic people, place their confidence in Jesus Christ, and not in themselves. And I I know that placing our trust in Jesus alone means a lot to us. The phrase means a lot, and that begins the day that we put our trust in Jesus to forgive us for our sins and to, to wash us clean. But as we grow in allowing Jesus to be at the center of all of our lives, we discover more and more that there's a lot of areas in our lives where our confidence is in our flesh, right? Our confidence is in ourselves. We, we do pretty good for the hour and a half on Sunday mornings, right? Our eyes are on the Lord. Our eyes are in the Word. That, that 90 minutes, man, we are tearing it up. Unfortunately, we leave. And it you know, keeping the nose up, <laughs> it's going down. And the rest of our week may not be that way, right? Uh, and so we, we, we're people that are learning to allow Jesus, not only on Sunday morning, but every moment, to take the center, to take the center in our work life, right? To take the center in our school life, to take the center in our money stewardship, to be at the center in our prioritizing and our time management. We actually check with him before we make plans. That's an idea, right? We're all working on this stuff, right? Nobody's arrived. I am not, I am not captain. I've arrived. No, I'm right there with you. But we're learning how to not put our confidence in ourselves and in our flesh, but to keep our confidence in Jesus in everything, okay? The danger is that we go into autopilot, isn't it? We're so used to just doing stuff ourselves and making our own decision. Our confidence is in ourselves that we're not well trained to put Jesus at the center and to involve him in our choices in every kind of ordinary thing 
like we might do in that 90 minutes on Sunday morning, right? So that's the adventure, allowing Jesus to take the center in our marriage, in our parenting, and not placing our confidence in ourselves and our ability to change our spouse, change our children, right? It's an opportunity to grow for all of us, isn't it? Yes? You with me? Okay, great verse. Uh, one of my favorites is Romans 11.36, which is the verse just before Romans 12, 1 and 2, which many of us know. But most people don't know the verse before. And here's what it says. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, through him, and to him are all things. Say all with me. All things. That's what it is to be a worshiper. All things. I love that verse. Carry on with me. Verse 4. Although I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And what Paul does here is he reluctantly compares his Jewish credentials with those of the Judaizers who are telling these young Gentile converts that they have to embrace all of these additional to-do lists in order to be right with God. And he does it in hopes of exposing the false confidence that comes from trying to think that they can maintain the ceremonial law, including circumcision. And so Paul lets it rip. And Paul is no a small guy. Paul is a significant man. He's a substantive leader. And he goes through his pedigree briefly. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Literally means I'm an eight-dayer. And, and what, that, what that basically means is that from birth, he's not like the rest of the Jews that are probably listening or reading, listening to him say this or reading this, who come from a mixed background. Some pure blood, some mixture, but somehow they are putting their hope in the, the God of Israel. No, Paul is fully compliant with the ceremonial law from birth, from the eighth day circumcision. He's of the people of Israel. He's not a mixed race, but he's of the direct line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name is changed then to Israel, right? So he's not a mix. He's pure-blooded, baby. He is blue-blooded. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a tribe that was, had unique honor in the history of, of uh, the Jews. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's raised, that means he's raised in a Hebrew kosher home, and that his entire life he has faithfully been devoted to the traditions and laws of, of the Scripture. As to the law, he's a Pharisee. Paul is not only raised right, but he's personally devoted. He's a personally devoted guy. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees are the most dedicated, high-bar sect that there is in all of Jewish history. And he, in addition to that, he's a prized seminary student. He studies under Gamaliel, which is this heavyweight genius guy. Paul is, is a substantive man. As to, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And what he, what he means there is his devotion to the law and the traditions wasn't just something that produced sitting back and saying, I believe these things. No, he was radically sincere. He took action on the things that he believed to the point that he hunted down people that believed differently to have them stoned and killed to stop them. This guy's bought in. He's radical, okay? It says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You think, well, how can a guy say he's blameless? Well, what he means here is as far as outward compliances are concerned, no one could con 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 uh, accuse him. It doesn't mean that he was blameless in his heart. 
He was just blameless in his outward conduct, right? There's a big difference between being blameless according to the law and blameless in our hearts, which Jesus did a great job of addressing when he says, you say, don't, uh, you, know, you say that you shall, thou shall not murder. I say, don't hate your brother in your heart. Yikes. You say you shall not commit adultery. I say, don't lust in your heart. Ah, we're all guilty. Everybody's guilty. There's no such thing as a righteous heart, right? Let's carry on. Verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul begins here in verse 7. He's referring to his past. He uses verbiage of the past. Whatever gain I had, I counted as, I counted as loss. He's looking at the past. and It's certainly referring to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul also uses accounting terms here. He, he counts, right? Profits and losses. He's describing his life like we would look at an, a financial investment, okay? He's, he's presenting Paul's P and L statement to us. And in the one column, we've got the profits, right? He's got family heritage, social status, financial inheritance, religious merit, academic training, career opportunity among the Pharisees. The sky is the limit for this guy. On the the loss column, not much. Uh, Things couldn't have been better for Paul until he goes to Damascus. And in a moment, Paul's works-based righteousness is completely undone as he encounters the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ as he's knocked off his horse, as he tumbles into the dust. In a moment, everything that he thought was gain, he realizes has just switched balance accounts. In a moment, everything that he thought was gain, it's loss. It's worthless. And in a moment, nothing matters anymore but Jesus. Nothing matters anymore. And in verse 8, we see the, the terminology, the verbiage changes where Paul moves now to the present. He says, indeed, he's not saying I counted. Now I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's been 30 years since Paul initially encountered Jesus. At first, he uses in verse 7 the word loss. He's lost his family, probably. He's lost his status. He's lost his career opportunity. But 2 Corinthians 11 tells us a lot more of what's happened. He's lost a lot before he even gets up out of the dust. But that's only the beginning of what now is going to be a life abandoned to the will of God for his life and for us. Thank God that that he followed Jesus the way that he did. So 2 Corinthians 11 tells us a lot more about those 30 years. And Paul refers to, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 23. You don't need to turn to it. I'll just read He refers to far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. We see a profound change between what Paul says, the change in his devotion, a change in his affection from verse 7 to verse 8, when Paul initially refers in verse 7 to simply loss. It's now everything. It's everything. He's lost everything. And what Paul initially refers as simply loss for the sake of Christ is now everything for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. After 30 years of indescribable sacrifice and suffering, Paul's heart and affections are consumed with one thing. He is not thinking about his losses. He's not thinking about being in prison. He is thinking about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Jesus is better than everything. He's better than everything. And Paul knew it, and we need to know it too, don't we? Notice that it doesn't say, knowing this about Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, knowing about him. No mere mental assent to belief could ever carry Paul through everything that he's been through but only the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's the only time in the... Paul refers to Jesus as Lord many times in the New Testament, but it's always pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. That's the context. This is the only time in the whole New Testament where Paul says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's mine. I know him. I love him. He's precious to me. He's mine. He's the, the, the surpassing worth is nowhere else but in him. Jesus. It's personal. It's intimate. It's precious. And we continue, it says, For his sake I suffer the loss of all things, And I count them but rubbish. It literally means dung, refuse, waste in the streets. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, a man-made religion that comes from laws, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The word depend there doesn't mean that depends on my faith. It simply means that that's what I rely on. My faith is there. The righteousness that comes from God, that's where I rest my hope. Only on Him. Paul's exchanged every vestige of false righteousness that comes from man for the true righteousness from God in Christ alone. And now after 30 years of following Jesus, after all Paul's been through, after all he's experienced, all his sacrifices, all his suffering, here's his all-consuming passion. That I may know him. You would think, don't you know him? You already know him. It's been 30 years. His desire to know the Lord is insatiable, though. He knows that knowing Jesus is not like knowing you or me. That there's more. That there's surpassing value in knowing Jesus. That I may know him. 
the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. To know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, involves several important things. Okay? They're mentioned here. To know Jesus is about knowing the power of his resurrection. It's about resurrection power. The thing that's amazing here, the the line in the verse is, it goes from to know the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to become like him in death, that I may, may experience the resurrection from the dead. Guess what? That's not, the, that's not the way that the gospel story goes. The gospel story goes, Jesus suffers. Jesus dies and is crucified on a cross. Jesus is buried. Jesus raises from the dead. The storyline for us starts right there. We join him in the resurrection from the dead as a resurrected people who now engage life in fellowship with him knowing him in all of the aspects that knowing and walking with Jesus involved. But isn't that fascinating that the first thing that's addressed here is the power of his resurrection. The power is not ours. We begin right off the bat with power from God as the true circumcision. Romans 11 tells us, excuse me, Romans 8, 11 tells us, this is just a, such a great verse. If the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, and he does if you're a believer. If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that same spirit will give life to your mortal body. King James says it'll quicken. It'll make you alive. It's not just talking about eternity. It's talking about the eternal life that began when Jesus Christ took up residence in you. Today, If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will give life to your mortal body. He'll meet you where you are. He'll empower you. He'll live his life and his virtue through you. It's so wonderful. It's not by works we've done. It's not by man's effort. It's a righteousness that comes from God from beginning to end. God pursues us. God transforms us from the inside out. All we do, we yield. We get out of the way. We just say, yeah, okay, yes. And we allow Jesus to take the centerpiece, to be the center of the storyline in everything. (coughs) Excuse me. So it's about today. It's about knowing him. It's about the choices in obedience today. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you today to give you power to be obedient in that area where you struggle, that area where you're tempted. Loving and serving other people. That other person that's a pain in the neck. Those areas that are a struggle for you. Same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work right now, right here, right now. His resurrection power is us. So we need to know, if we're going to know Jesus, we need to know his resurrection power. If we're going to know Jesus, we need to also understand that we're going to share in his sufferings. It goes with the territory. If we are joined to Christ... We are, we're not going to be, we're not going to suffer to atone for anybody's sins. But if we're going to be joined with Christ, we're joined with his reproach. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. In another place, he said, if they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you. Another place says, all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Be of good cheer. And it's interesting, it's fellowship in his suffering. It doesn't just say suffering. It's communion with the Lord. The Lord is with us in all of those difficult things. He's at work in us. He's forming Christ in us. He's helping us to let go of our idols. He's helping us to let go of our trust in our man-made religion. He's rescuing us. And he's with us. He's near. It's the fellowship of his sufferings. To know Jesus, we're going to become like him in his death. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he's speaking to his disciples. Any disciples here this morning? Disciples? Disciples? 
Is there such a thing as a Christian who's not a disciple? If you think there is, I'm sorry. There's not. There's no such thing. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him, this is exciting, hold, your, hold, hold on to your seats, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. The Lord's got a cross for everybody. We all have issues we need to trust the Lord for, don't we? You've got health issues. You've got money issues. You've got a relational problem. You've got a work problem. Everybody's got stuff. The Lord gives everybody a cross so that we can learn to lean on Jesus in that thing. Whoever would save his life, whoever wants to save your life, I'm sorry. You want to hold on to a man-made identity? You want to hold on to what you do, what you contribute? I'm sorry. You're going to lose your life. That is leading to ultimate regret. But whoever loses their life for Jesus' sake will find real life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Principle number one in business management, begin with the end in mind. I'm going to stand before the Lord. All of Paul's suffering is going to be over when he stands before the Lord. All of the pain in his broken bones from the beatings and the rods, it's all going to be over. He's face to face with Jesus. It's all over. All of the financial pressures, all of the the people that you wanted to please and the decisions that you made so that people would like you, nobody's going to care anymore. That day, there's only going to be one thing that matters, and it's going to be about being with Jesus and then looking back on our lives to understand, did, did I understand the end? Did I understand what God's purpose was? Did I know what he was doing in my generation? Did I know God's priorities? And did I respond to Jesus and put him in the center of my life to join him in what he wanted done with my life, just like Paul? That's the question. And uh, to know Jesus... We've got to become like him in his death. We, we say no to ourselves in order to say yes to him, don't we? To know Jesus that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It doesn't, the, the original Greek does not mean that somehow I'm going to earn my way into heaven. It just means that by whatever means, through blessings, through challenges, through certain relationships, through open doors of opportunity, through whatever means that I can step into eternal life today in Christ. That the resurrection power that Jesus paid for on the cross that is mine would be something that I engage today and tomorrow and the day after everywhere I am and in everything that I'm doing until that day when I see him face to face. May our life passion join with Paul with a singular longing that we may know him, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any way the Lord chooses, we may engage resurrection life right here, right now, until Jesus comes back for us or we go home to be with him. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.